had this discussion with, with actually a group of a very successful startup in the region. They're like, we are now at around 150 of us. Do you think it's the right time to get someone in HR, right? I was like, oh, wow. Yesterday or the day before yesterday, that should have happened. This is nice to have, but at the same time, it's a must, right? Actually, it's a must. It's not an accessory anymore, especially when you're looking at hybrid teams, remote teams. You need someone in the department, right, to actually contain and all of this. When I first joined Aspire, one of the first things I did was actually uh, create a uh, career progression uh, approach or career progression ladder for the commercial teams that I led. And that was quite important for ensuring that people felt like they had a stake in progression and in, in, the, in the success of the organization. Because as they proved to themselves, they would be able to advance their careers as well. And that's with even relatively small teams. HR has now taken the lead to expand that sort of initiative uh, throughout the rest of the organization. And they've been a key thought partner for the commercial leadership in, in making sure that we uh, do have something in place for people, which has helped to improve retention, uh, improve overall performance, and just generally keep people happy in ways that are, are more than just assigning digital. Everyone's aware that HR is important. It's just, again, where does it fit on the agenda? We are seeing some companies now bringing people into senior HR positions who've not been in HR before, who've come from other parts of the business, who maybe have a better understanding of the commercial side of the business and a better empathy in terms of what the company's trying to do and are more invested in the company. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear and also interesting that you talked about how just there's so much opportunity in terms of talent available access thanks to a lot of different factors that we've covered so far. But at the same time, I think in this market, a lot of startups are also thinking about costs and spending and all of these other constraints, right? How much should I spend on benefits, vis-a-vis pay, how many people should I hire in this market, so on and so forth. So I wanted to direct this question to Karen and Ollie. How then do you try to upskill or equip, especially a lean HR team working at a tech company, venture back tech company, especially to set the right enough kind of like infrastructure and policies, for example, to be able to grow teams in various markets that we've discussed so far, Karen? Sure. I think when it comes to HR, especially in hyper-growth startups, it's nice to have, right? Maybe I can ask that to Thomas. Where, when did Aspire get an HR person on, on board? I, I feel that when I talk to you, it's, yeah, it's nice to have, right? So when, and I had this discussion with, with actually a group of, a very successful startup in the region. They're like, we are now at around 150 of us. Do you think it's the right time to get someone in HR, right? I was like, oh, wow yesterday or the day before yesterday that should have happened this is nice to have but at the same time it's a must right actually it's a must it's not an accessory anymore especially when you're looking at hybrid teams remote teams you need someone to actually right um, someone in the department right to actually contain and all of this so part of it could be outsourced i agree the whole contracting the whole hiring if you don't have an entity, so on and so forth, absolutely. Maybe Thomas, you can step in and maybe share a little bit of what Karen was alluding to with regards to bringing in an HR and at what point in, in Aspire's journey that kind of thing. Yeah, so I, I've been around Aspire for about 18 months now. We definitely had an HR function by the time I joined. From what I understand, we, however, did neglect it relatively early on in the company's life cycle. Over the past 18 months, I have seen a significant increase in the consistency of our organization and the way that we operate as we've added more HR resources and have empowered HR in some ways to be more of a strategic leader. When I first joined Aspire, one of the first things I did was actually uh, create a uh, career progression uh, approach or career progression ladder for the commercial teams that I led. 
And that was quite important for ensuring that people felt like they had a stake in progression and in, in, the, in the success of the organization, because as they proved to themselves, they would be able to advance their careers as well. And that's with even relatively small teams. HR has now taken the lead to expand that sort of initiative uh, throughout the rest of the organization. And they've been a key thought partner for the commercial leadership in, in making sure that we uh, do have something in place for people, which has helped to improve retention, uh, improve overall performance, and just generally keep people happy in ways that are, are more than just assigning digital. That makes sense. That's right. So we, we hosted a HR roundtable uh, and we just hosted one today. And absolutely, I think HR is a key function, right? So we ourselves have invested heavily into HR teams. And we, we talk about HR roles that have become multidimensional. So what does it mean? It's not anymore, right? A department where you go and complain that your pay slip is, is wrong. It's, it's mostly about having them as a business partner, right? So how can we be proactive as well within the organization? And I think that would free up as well a lot of time and a lot of pressure on founders of companies, which we, we've seen, right? So we've talked to founders that actually have taken the leap to actually create an HR department. And they've said themselves, right? Why haven't I, I done it? Because as a, I guess as, as a founder, you feel responsible, right? You know, you put the company together, you've hired the one to the 150 person. So you feel responsible of the people. But at some point, you actually need to, again, not outsource the, the thing completely, but also then rely, right, on, on the right people to, to help you to, to manage the, the teams. Yeah, and just to bring in Thomas's point from earlier, HR doesn't really have to work in silos and there's a lot to learn from other departments that can be scaled across the organization. And, and for Ali, any thoughts to add in terms of how to uh, grow and manage an HR function, especially for our lean team? Yeah, HR is an interesting one because during the pandemic, HR became front and center in terms of how to manage through that health and well-being, very much part of that. And we've seen it as then companies came out of the pandemic and the rush to make up the lost ground, HR got pushed back to the support function and, and admin space. And, and I agree with both, both Thomas and Karen that HR really does need investment. It's very hard to build a sustainable business unless you get your people strategy on point and consistent. And that then leads, as Thomas said, to retention, engagement, and all these things. But you also got to find the right HR people. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that the quality of HR, and we partnered with a lot of HR people, so I'm, I'm going to be a little bit careful how I phrase this, but that is, is up and down compared to some more mature markets where HRs very often at the board, almost entirely, you know, very much as a voice at boardroom level and is a strategic part of any business. Like a publicity company, HR is a very prominent part of our business and healthcare benefits and all the rest of it. A lot of that's done for us, to be honest with you, because it's a global policy and follow it. Whether you like it or not, follow it. At least it's done. So employees aren't second guessing if it's going to, what it's going to do. What we are seeing a little bit with companies, I think everyone's aware that HR is important. It's just, again, where does it fit on the agenda? We are seeing some companies now bringing people into senior HR positions who've not been in HR before, who've come from other parts of the business, who maybe have a better understanding of the commercial side of the business and a better empathy in terms of what the company's trying to do and are more invested in the company. So it's not just a job that it's important because HR is very often the front line of when you are hiring. It's the first person somebody often meets is the HR representative and good candidates will have good questions and they need to be able to be answered if they're going to get a perception that company is a joined up company who are a good company and culture to join. If you don't have a, an HR person who's relatively commercial, just becomes a screening process and is not a great first impression of a company, 
in a competitive market, as Karen said, talent shortages. You can't afford to lose good talent early on just because somebody was in front of them, not necessarily providing the messages that you want them to, to do. We are seeing with SMEs that the more senior people, decision makers are involved in interview processes earlier, give that first impression, and then some of the admin comes later on. So that's something to, to think about. But the challenge now is how do you find HR who are commercial? And that I will agree is there's a shortage of candidates in that. You know, in Indonesia, for example, you can't have a foreigner's head of HR labor laws, which are, you know, they were updated, but this wasn't updated as part of the labor laws, uh, the omnibus. So then you are limited to people within the same pool who've often been in Indonesia business world for 15, 20 years, quite an old school way of managing an HR function. That's not going to get you where you want to get to. Or do you bring in somebody four or five years experience, maybe he's not ready to take on that responsibility, but has a fresher mindset. But as we know, at that level, people tend to move off quite quickly into the next shiny toy and the next shiny thing. So, so HR is a big conundrum. I, I, I will you know, happily admit that, which is why we are seeing companies, as I said, starting to take some risks and saying, taking people from outside HR and bring them in. Why? Because the people strategy, it's absolute fundamental. So it's not a sideways move for somebody coming from supply chain or finance or wherever it might be. It's not often seen once it's explained, it's quite a good career move for somebody. And we meet and there are HR directors out there who, who've only had one or two years experience in HR and 15 years experience elsewhere. Consultancy firms as well. There are obviously HR consultancy firms. They tend to be a good source of, for this as well for the smaller size businesses where the HR side of things isn't actually that complex. But yeah, again, to my point earlier, a little bit of creative thinking happens. If you're just taking someone who's had four jobs in HR in the last six years, you probably know what you're going to get. Yeah, really thinking about how to expand that pool, especially when you're limited by like labor laws and, and things like that. And really interesting point on how do you bring in HR that's uh, commercial, right? So something to take away for our audience this afternoon. I wanted to quickly touch on financial management aspect as well of expanding into different markets. We've discussed at length about finding talent setting up admin side on managing that talent and all of that. I wanted to ask Thomas as well, like how does financial management and all these, say, different accounts that you're managing across different markets factor into this whole business expansion strategy for, for a regional company? Yeah, I think on the financial side, it, it gets honestly very complicated very quickly once you're in multiple entities across multiple countries. As in addition to the local operations you're dealing with, you have all sorts of financial controls that you're trying to make standard across your different teams. You have to deal with tax issues. And so there's, there, there are implications for the different intra-company transfers that you're doing as well. And our advice on this is that, first of all, there's really no magic bullet in the region. To some extent, you do have to bear the cost of that fragmentation to the extent that you need to. There, there are a few ways to simplify, right? As Karen would probably tell you, uh, for EOR providers, uh, you can get like one single bill uh, if that's what you're looking for as well. And so that can ease a lot of financial processing uh, fees. Um, if you're using something like the Aspire platform, where you have a unified ERP system like uh, NetSuite, uh, you can do reconciliation across the group uh, of companies or uh, throughout the region or throughout the world more easily as well. Um, on the Aspire side, uh, as you try to scale across uh, different yeah, units or across different countries, you can take, this, take the same platform and issue corporate cards, issue budgets to different people, ensuring visibility as well as control throughout your scaling process. It tends to be easier than trying to replicate things through spreadsheets or through Google Docs throughout each different country. We've had several successful case studies like Lintz, which recently used Aspire in their operations throughout the region, uh, saving a lot of time on, on manual work and making sure that their teams are well-trained 
on budgets, leading to greater fiscal responsibility, even while empowering them to spend more quickly. I could go on about this, but honestly, the I think this overall space is still developing. I guess the overall gist of things is wherever it makes sense, uh, do try to use a unified platform as possible and as local regulations allow. Great. Yeah. Unified platform. And I think still early space, I think likely a very good business to be in to actually help businesses expand in, in different aspects and whatever way pos- possible. Uh, at this point, I wanted to get into some of the questions that we have from the attendees and also the registrants for this event. First up, we have, can the panel share tips or strategies to scale operations across multiple countries in Southeast Asia? We've covered a a lot of that over this discussion. I think operations-wise, I guess, did anyone from our panel want to add when it comes to, because we just talked about landing into the market, I guess, with regards to growing that and trying to scale operations, especially for, for tech companies that did any of our panelists want to add to that? Yeah, I think something I've, I've noticed in terms of scaling operations, a lot of companies, so if you look at LinkedIn, so just look at the LinkedIn jobs advert. So one thing I've noticed recently, and not recently, maybe in the last year, is a lot of companies specify time zone, right? When they're hiring these days, right? So they don't even say, okay, you need to be based, you must be based in, if it's a manufacturing job, I guess you have to be based somewhere, right? But not of the jobs today. They just specify time zone. And that was quite insightful for me, right? To actually notice that a lot of companies, right, going to, yeah, as long as you are in an Asian time zone, it's fine. So that again, right? So maybe it doesn't answer directly in terms of scaling the operation, but it goes towards the fact that the world is opening, right? So there is growth beyond borders, right? So that to, to relate to ourselves as well, we now have team members. If we were not a remote first company, right? We have team members that actually would probably not be able to work for us, right? Because maybe they're not in a tier one city, you know, maybe they're not in Jakarta, right? They are in other cities in, in Indonesia, other cities in, in, in Malaysia, that if they had to come to an office and work, we wouldn't have that talent pool available to us, right? So I think that would be one, again, going back to if you can't find the talent in particular places, then open up. So look at the skill set, right? First of all, focus on, okay, what are we trying to do? We're trying to find someone who can do the job regardless of where they are, right? Because again, technology, there are lots of tools today. So for us, we operate a lot on Slack, right? We have a lot of different plugins, as Thomas was saying, right? There's a lot of different APIs to do that connects everything. Then actually, you have a mobile office, right? And that, by default, makes you more appealing right? And attractive. So I was going to add to that because uh, that you spent the last however long doing exactly that job in terms of how to scale up Southeast Asia. And I'm talking to a company this morning who said, we want to hire across these, all these markets. Number one is prioritization. And this, as Thomas alluded to earlier, and the fragmentation of Southeast Asia. It's, it's, you often get this from companies coming from the Western world, right? Let's just go after it. it, it the perception is different than the reality. The second thing is that I would also look at focusing on retention. Very hard to scale if your attrition rate is 40, 50% you spend your whole life just rotating. So areas like training and development, career progression paths, which Thomas again alluded to earlier, putting those in place early in these countries, starting small, getting them right, get the blueprint right. Word of mouth then also does an awful lot of the marketing for you in terms of your employee presence. But if people are leaving constantly, it's not very hard to build a competitive edge in terms of this is why you should join us because you can lose track of that messaging very quickly or lose control of that messaging very quickly. I'd focus on the retention bit. You'll find people. You just don't need to find all of them in the first six months. Uh, and, and that's, again, that's some of the mistakes made in 
some of the companies who got caught up in the market conditions being very positive scaled in the bubble, but have now found that's uh, not a sustainable model at all. So I, I'd focus on retention. If you have the strong leadership in this part of the world, people follow the leader probably more than they follow the brand. Yeah, I actually wanted to expand that point a little bit more with regards to retention and bringing that back into how that attracts even more talent and creates this kind of like flywheel for the organization or for the brand. Maybe Thomas, you can speak to Aspire's own experience setting that flywheel up of by giving great experience for, for employees, then that would eventually attract more people, better people right, into the organization. Honestly, I'm hesitant to talk too much about our practices because one, I don't like to brag. And the two, I don't know how representative it necessarily is. But I will say that in my experience, anytime we're interviewing a candidate, uh, I have found that people will have talked long before they've gotten to me as a hiring manager. They might have talked to former employees at Aspire. They might have talked to existing current employees at Aspire. They definitely talked to their friends and their family who might know, who are familiar with the company as well, right? And I have also found in my own experience that name recognition and brand recognition, for example, we were featured as a LinkedIn top startup, whatever that means this year, and somehow candidates care about this kind of thing. I will say that the branding efforts as well as the word of mouth actually do make a significant difference, especially when we're trying to keep a high hiring bar and trying to get the best talent. Yeah, uh, definitely a great point uh, that we brought up in this discussion about brand and, and making sure that's communicated across we have the second question, which I think we've also covered, but just in case uh, anyone else wanted to add, what are the most promising industries and countries for international expansion in C? Maybe I wanted to flip this question a little bit. And are there any industries or markets that maybe people aren't really paying that much attention to, or that's pretty underrated in terms of Southeast Asia expansion uh, that you guys think should deserves more, more interest or more attention? I can take that first since we are in some ways serving companies throughout the various countries of Southeast Asia. I think to some extent, the spotlight, at least in the startup world, has generally been first on Singapore as a regional hub, and then secondly on, on Indonesia. As Ali mentioned earlier, I think some of that narrative, uh, I would say across the board, has taken a hit, right? A, a lot of unicorns did not turn out to be able to sustain their valuation, sustain their growth in an effective way. And I think that honestly does have something to do with the fundamental economics of the businesses here. A lot of the, the businesses we're going for are very high, very fast growth uh, with relatively low margins. In order for that to happen and for that to sustain, one, you do eventually need to be able to charge more. And two, you need a, a lot of macro tailwinds to sustain your growth as well. So from that lens, and we look past the hype, I do think that there are, from a consumer market standpoint, there are a couple of under or overlooked countries or markets in the region. I would call out specifically the Philippines as well as Vietnam. Both are very fast growth economies, both fly under the radar, difficult in their own ways, but have a lot of potential. And from a B2B side, ultimately what powers the region is trade and the financial service. Financial service Singapore is going to be the hub. I think that's going to continue to be the case. But with trade, I think we do see increasingly more multifaceted trade. It's not just, again, not just about exporting commodities at this point. And again, calling out Vietnam, which I'm actually fairly uh, bullish on. We do see Vietnam and Vietnamese companies participating increasingly in global supply chains in a way that they weren't before. And so I do expect a, a lot more to come from uh, that country in the future. Yeah. So yeah, definitely more complex B2B trade and, and Vietnam as well. Ali, again, we agree with us, but most of the last hour, Greg Thomas, but the Philippines, I think is compelling. It's English speaking. 
It's been pushed to the back of the agenda for a lot of companies in terms of expansion in Southeast Asia, but it has a large demographic, has also a very strong BPO sector, which has a lot of talent in it, who are used to working for multinational companies. So that we're seeing fast, we, we launched the Philippines two years ago, and it's been our fastest growing country globally. And that is in a recovery time where a lot of other parts of the world have grown very quickly too. Philippines is, is the number one out of our 36 countries. So that's pretty compelling in, it, in itself. The other one I'd keep an eye on is Indonesia. And again, Thomas, and, and, and I've spoken about the unicorn dynamics. The last four months, the results we've seen in, in Indonesia have really started to pick up. It had a, a pretty poor Q4, Q1 because of the tech winter and all that, all that came with that. Confidence is coming back and the demographics sell themselves with Indonesia. Elections, yes, I've, been, I've mentioned that before, but that usually creates opportunity. And, that's, and we saw this in the Philippines with the election, uh, Marcos coming in. Western world, that's just maybe a strange kind of thing. But in the Philippines itself, he's already done more international trips than Duterte did in eight years in the first six months. So elections, we anticipate Jakarta won't be too dissimilar to that in terms of going out there, we're ready for business. We want to pivot a little bit away from the unicorns and that will create opportunities across different sectors as, as well. Vietnam, we continually say Vietnam's the one to keep an eye on. Uh, and the feedback we continue to get, it's not as easy as it sounds with Vietnam. Uh, and some of the corruption and other things, which are maybe some sensitive subjects, we still get examples of that quite a lot coming back to us saying it's getting a JV partner there is not as easy as we thought it would be. And hence companies then pivoting to Indonesia, Philippines, and then being pleasantly surprised, I think, by the fact that actually consumer-wise, this is a much bigger market potentially. So yeah, Vietnam has its place, don't get me wrong. Thailand has been our best performing country in the last 12 months, which sometimes falls off the radar as well. A lot of that is, manu is manufacturing automotive in some of the sort of traditional areas, but some of that is in the digital space as well. So I'd keep an eye on Thailand as well in the next 12, 18 months as, as a potential opportunity to scale up. Yeah, interesting point on Thailand. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. But yeah, Thailand, Philippines, Vietnam, lots of very understated opportunities. To wrap up this conversation, on that note, thank you so much, Karen, Thomas, and Ollie for this afternoon's discussion. A lot of topics covered. Thank you for joining us on this call. Make sure you get notified on when to dial in by following us wherever you're listening to us. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, toss in a like, and let us know if you'd like to hear more of this topic in the comments. See you all in our next call.